Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whenever you're listening. This is the In the Open podcast, and uh, we're really happy to have you here today. Today in Montana is the opening of, drumroll please, turkey season. (laughs) So as, as you can tell, we're avid turkey hunters because we're not out there on opening day. But it is opening day of turkey season. But it is. Right? But we, we might get some tags and go maybe kill a, kill a bird. We'll buy some tags. Tags are cheap here for us residents, but... It's like six bucks. I wasn't using my... I'm not, yeah, avid enough to be out there opening day trying to gobble them in. And opening right. day is never the best day unless it's rifle season, you know. Opening day of elk, the or elk aren't really bugling yet, you know, it's... You got time. Opening day of bear isn't the best bear day. You got a little bit of time before you're in the peak of the season. So oh, yeah. We've got time. I saw some turkeys. I sent you guys Snapchat. They were all yeah. gobbling it up. and Dude, we heard this turkey from the woods when I was working the other day. It was just, what do you call it when they just go, is that like a clucky? Or I don't know. No idea what that's called. As you can no, tell, not we're, sure. we're clearly avid turkey hunters but uh, it was just going <laughs> for about 10 minutes straight and i was like almost thinking it was a hunter but like wasn't season so uh i don't know can you over over call a bird probably not <laughs> I, I don't know. i've heard turkeys are smart but i also think they're really dumb at times so it's hard to say they taste pretty good they do taste good there's Definitely. a lot of meat on that bird yeah did your did your parents ever make food. the joke around Thanksgiving that you just eat so much insane amounts of food, and then they're like, you get tired because you ate all that food, and then uh, your dad would be like, oh that's the tryptophan in the turkey that'll make you tired, and it's like you don't actually think it was maybe the five pounds of food I just ate and my body's yeah. like dying. <laughs> I'm maybe it might be you're in the getting into a food coma, but sure, why not blame it on the trip to fan? <laughs> maybe, maybe a little trip to fan. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, we got some interesting topics coming at you. And uh, yeah, let's start her off with uh, Eric. He was going to talk a little bit about the Flathead Indian Reservation, how they, uh, why don't you just get into it? Yeah, sure thing. So earlier this year, there was proposals that they were going to do some price increases for camping stamps and non-resident fishing and hunting licenses and of the sorts. And I think those went through. And from this article, the camping stamps were originally, I believe, $20, and now they are $100. Um, residents of the reservation, your annual conservation license is $40, disabled license 37 Non-residents of the reservation, annual conservation licenses are now $100. A three-day conservation license is 80 And a three-day conservation fishing license is $105. So they've really upped the rates. And I can definitely say I've noticed this um, not too long ago. Rachel and I were driving back from Plains, and we stopped along the res just to kind of take a break and stretch our legs. There was a sign posted that said, Basically, unless you have a camping or access permit, you are and are or are a member of the reserve or of the tribe, you are not allowed to actually access their lands. It is considered trespassing unless you bought 
that access permit. So that definitely took me by surprise. Yeah, honestly, like I haven't spent much time on the the reservations around, but dang, they are sovereign nation. They are technically their own mm-hmm. yeah country ish within a country. I don't know exactly how that works, but that's that's a big price increase. Yeah, it definitely took me by surprise when I saw it because I think it's usually like thirty to forty dollars for a season fishing license, and now it's a hundred. It was just huge price increase. I wonder where that funding is going to go. Yeah, I'm not sure because I think the issue I've heard, and I mean this is coming secondhand, so it may just be you know through the grapevine, not super accurate. But I had heard is they one of the reasons they wanted to do a price increase too is because they're getting a ton of people accessing and they're wanting to help manage how many people are like because there's a big concern about overuse for some facilities and i i think i've i've read articles like it's happening a lot around the state a lot there's a lot of areas that get overused and then people just throw garbage all over the place and then sites have to get closed from you know overnight to day use only and then some day use only sites have to then become just closed permanently because people trash the place so i definitely understand that that concern but I don't know if necessarily jumping the price up over twice is the right answer. Yeah, that's insane. It's like basically getting an out-of-state fishing license, going to Washington or Idaho or something as a non-resident and fishing like the steelhead run for a right. few days. That's a lot. Is that a seasonal thing or is it just like a couple-day pass? I might You might have said I might have missed. No worries. Um, so I think the annual conservation license... It says here is a hundred dollars, and then like the three-day conservation fishing and or conservation and fishing license for non-residents is okay. So non-residents of the reservations, it's one hundred five dollars for a three-day, and and then non-residents for the state of Montana, according to this article, it says one hundred and forty-six dollars. So considerably increased. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> like an out-of-state tag yeah for a very small piece of land in like all actuality honestly yeah you'd be better off just to get your montana license and fish i wonder how that works on flathead lake because half the lake is on reservation and the other half is like public but it's like conjoined i don't know that that'd be interesting to look at right i think they just manage it yeah like a federal body of water is tough yeah yeah how it's managed yeah, I'm not totally certain. I th- I think I've heard they just usually like it just depends on which half you're fishing. If you fish the north half, you're in Montana regulations. South half, you're in Flathead regulations. There is some good fishing to be had there, though. Like big old Definitely. trout. Yeah, Mac days are a big deal there. Oh yeah. Yeah, for those of you who may not know, Flathead Lake has a huge, really good lake trout fishery, and they do a lot of uh, tournament fishing. And they both i think in the fall and the spring and they call them mac days because lake trout also go by mackinac so fantastic eating too yep they're very good enjoy the crap out of them they're fun to fish too definitely i'd love to fish for them i haven't yet the, you're in the sandpoint's a great area the uh lake ponderay has some big ones too they also have the cameloops, which would be so fun, man. Oh, yeah. No, they, I just watched a State of the Fishery video not too long ago, and they're talking about how they're doing a lot to 
get the Kamloops back to, because they did a big effort to get the kokanee salmon. And usually these Kamloops trouts, they're saying, evolved alongside the kokanee salmon to, to prey on them. So if the salmon population is good, you'll usually start seeing fish in that 25-plus pound range pretty not super common, obviously, because that's a big top of the food chain fish, but a lot more than it used to be when the salmon are low. For those of you that don't know what Kamloops are, they're a endemic species of rainbow trout that evolved in the the Kootenai River and up into Ponderay, and they can reach uh, like weight up to like forty pounds. They are very big, very big trout. Yeah, that'd be my dream to go catch one. I know my dad has a couple mounted. He has, and man, ever since I was a little kid growing up, I just see those fish on the wall. Like that is my goal to catch a fish worthy <laughs> to be mounted on the wall. My grandpa, I think I, I posted a picture on my page. Um, him and his buddy went to the what's that reservoir by Eureka? Uh, Lake Kukanusa. Lake Kukanusa, and they caught a bunch of big ones. And I think their biggest was like a twenty-five and a twenty-two pounder. This is good sizes. Right. Muscle. Did you did you have something that you were wanted to talk about right away before we get into everything? No, I don't think so. I think the articles that I was reading were kind of just repeats, so I won't bore the listeners with more wolf wolf topics That's for fair. the time being. Well, I did read something this morning. I kind of grazed over it. It's uh from Science Alert, so um, looks like, uh, let's see, it's basically about how they're finding that fungus, fungi, may be communicating in a way that looks like human speech. So they took, uh, let's see, sorry guys, I should have had this a little more prepped. So they looked at the ghost fungus, the enoki, enoki fungus, the split gill fungus, and the caterpillar fungus, and uh they looked at electrical activity across these these funguses, these fungi, and uh, they recorded and detected microelectrodes. And it looked like uh, these uh, electrical buzzes, they looked like human speech. And they picked up like 50 different types of quote-unquote words and that they could string them along to make like five or six word sentences. This is all kind of speculative though like we don't know exactly what's been what's being said or if this is just like kind of a coincidence but it looks like they might be able to fungus might be able to communicate which is kind of crazy we actually was it you and i or you and i gave the did the mycorrhizae research yeah, we did some. I think Eric might have done a little bit the next year, too. Yeah, did you um, do some of that, Eric? I think so. I know I helped a lot with, like, when we would do the seedlings, making sure there was that mycorrhizae, like, food, or if it's, like, I'm not sure if it's the bacteria itself or whatever that helped the roots grow and develop more efficiently and have more biomass. Yeah. Yeah, I think we harvested them that, that year. Yeah, we, all of us, we worked on a research project at Montana Tech, and it was just looking at the mycorrhizal inoculation versus, uh, like, normal soils. And basically, mycorrhizae shows that uh, there's, like, a, it's it's more beneficial to use that. 
I don't know. It's a very complicated paper, and we don't have to dive into it. It's yeah, really it's interesting fun. if you haven't looked. Just the mycorrhizae does help plants communicate and transfer. It wasn't it sugars. Yeah, so um, like the roots give the mycorrhizae sugars, and then the mycorrhizae give the roots more access to water. Yeah, so symbiotic relationship. Both organisms reap the benefit, and there's really no downside. Um, so pretty interesting stuff if you want to look into it. I mean, it's stuff that we know very little on, really. Um, and we're just like still learning a bunch about these kind of relationships. Yeah. The, uh, the soil science is just, it's pretty crazy. We're uh, Robert was telling me that, uh, there was like, there's like per teaspoon, something like, shoot, I, I probably am going to misquote this. It's like either 10,000 or a hundred thousand spores or something like that of mycorrhizae. I don't remember. Yeah, they're crazy. Anyway. And nature nature in general is crazy, especially plants. People just think, oh, it's a tree or whatever. It's stupid, but it's the way plants can communicate with each other. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Like, like I've heard it like, aren't there certain plants that like if they get eaten by like caterpillars or like release a pheromone that like attracts wasps or stuff like that? Yeah, stuff like that. Then there's like willows. They've done studies up in Alaska. Um, moose. They primarily eat like woody vegetation, especially in the winter time, because there's not a lot of grays and stuff like that. So they'll eat the willow patches, and if they're getting those willows are getting heavily grazed, they'll release something called catechin. I'm pretty sure it's catechin, and uh, it basically makes the willows taste more bitter, so it like deters the moose, and it won't taste good for them. So it's kind of crazy. Plants are bastards, and they're good at surviving. Oh, they are. <laughs> the first way more forms complex than you think. Yeah, yeah. What was it? Red algae in the in the ocean. That was the very first forms of life, and then yeah. microbes. Microbes. Yeah, blah blah. Any stuff like that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> science. Okay. It's science. Technology. Technology. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Kevin when we need him? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, speaking of Kevin, uh, our buddy we worked with, his kid is uh, getting into hunting. They just did hunter's education. So what tips do we have for him? For getting his just kid drag your dad out into the woods is what I'd say. Yeah, drag your dad out. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin loves being in the woods. I just don't know how big he is in on hunting. But it's an interesting point being a, a parent who isn't against hunting but just isn't a hunter and then having your child uh, kind of take that on. It'll be interesting to see if he gains like a different perspective on hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, being like a, you know, a... Um, like a figure who's like leading leading his son into hunting it'll be interesting to see if he comes away with any different perspectives um, yeah maybe we'll have yeah. to take him on after have him on after the season see how he how he felt about it mm-hmm. yeah definitely otherwise just get out in the woods yeah have some fun enjoy your time out there and hopefully you get lucky <laughs> right i feel like definitely enjoy it get him into it definitely like i know kevin's not against hunting by any means but I feel like he might be really attracted to it after. 
I don't mm-hmm. know. It's hard to say, really. It is hard to say. It's hard to know. I mean, it, it's hard to know how I'll react to certain experiences before I do them. Exactly, um, so, yeah. I mean, shooting specific animals has different emotional attachments for me. Shooting a deer compared to an elk compared to a bear, if I get one this spring, they'll all feel differently. So yeah. for me, I don't know how I'm going to react, so it's hard to say how someone someone else will react um, just without experiencing it for themselves. I know like Steve Ranella says anything with an eyelash, it's a there's like a little more emotional connection. So to Kevin, I would say start him off with small game, do a little grouse hunting. Uh, it's a little easier too, um, mm-hmm. and uh, see if they like. Grouse, it. Yeah, grouse especially. There's always something. I don't know. Shooting rabbits is kind of weird for me, or like mm-hmm. squirrels. I feel more bad about that than a grouse for whatever reason. Right. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> there, there shouldn't be any real difference, but I, I feel bad shooting a squirrel. But I like shoot a grouse. Like I will actively chase after grouse to shoot them. Oh, so. me too. It's just kind of funny. Not as much emotional connect connection between you and the grouse, but rather than you and the squirrel, Gabe. <laughs> yes, I guess you know the grouse I've hunted. They've just been like, they they might be the dumbest animals I've ever chased after. Around here, anyway. Yeah, they just do some stupid stuff. I, I've shot grouse and had the grouse sitting next to it fly to like the branch a foot away and then land and just feel safe. And I'm just like, how dumb are you? Like, I gave you a chance. I shot your buddy and let you go, but I wouldn't you're say necessarily here, dumb. It, it, it comes off that way, but I know like it they comes evolved. Off that way, yeah. yeah, they evolved to be to use their camouflage more. Mm-hmm. So like, oh, and their camouflage is like. I, I think I have a video from this past season where like we saw a grass land at like thirty yards away, mm-hmm. and I like it took me like five minutes to find it again. And it was just sitting there perfectly still. But, man, they're just blending in to everything. It's crazy. And then I shot and missed at it with my bow. (laughs) Dude, I missed a grouse with my bow at a very close range. I shot right under it. I I shot right over mine. I I aimed my 20-yard pin on it, and it was at 10 yards, and I missed that by, like, half an inch. (laughs) Almost. It's good to get a little practice in, though, you know? It's good. For sure. And grouse are just a great starting animal. They're a lot of fun. And it's not like you don't have to get super invested in it, you know, hiking miles and miles into the backcountry. You literally can just take a drive. I know I've hopped out of my truck before, just not hunting, but just like to go fishing or something and step out just to stretch my legs or relax or whatever. And then I had this grouse. I spooked it. It fluttered in a tree and I walked under it and then it fluttered over my head onto my truck and was sitting on the top of it. I'm like, (laughs) really? (laughs) They are kind of funny because they're just like, I mean, they're almost impossible to see if you're not like just flushing them a little bit. Yeah. Or once you flush them, they're really loud. They usually don't fly too far. Um, then oh, you when they flush, they around. scare the, sh- the crap out of me, man. Oh, they're man. loud. They Especially are. when you're already on edge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've definitely gotten like, felt like I've had a heart attack walking in the woods, getting ready, like looking for deer and stuff all of a sudden. And then there's a grouse, and you just, what was that? <laughs> that day we had that encounter with a bear, <laughs> like five minutes later, we flushed a grouse, and I thought Jay was going to hit his butt. Oh my <laughs> god, that jumped so hard. Well, we flushed that thing at like, what the hell is that? <laughs> like three yards. That thing was like on us 
If that was a bear, we were in big trouble because oh, it would have been dead. in our lap at that point. <laughs> well, hopefully you would notice a bear, you know, hopefully. at three yards versus a grouse. You would <laughs> yeah, think. they're funny little things. And they do, like, half the time they let you get pretty much as close as possible before flushing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I think it was my first day, the first day of archery season this year. I, I probably got within, like, an arm's length away from one and didn't see it before it flushed out of there, and that scared the jeebus out of me. I have noticed yeah, they're funny. that... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying they're, they're funny little birds. They yeah. are. I have noticed that some species are a little more spooky. Like mm-hmm. blue grouse, they definitely they tend to flush when you're a lot farther away. Mm-hmm. But like the rough grouse and uh, like the uh, Franklins, they're definitely a little less, less likely spooky, to yeah. flush. Less yeah. likely sure that's like their last case scenario when the other ones seem to just do that as like a pre preemptive defense mechanism so they're just not letting you get close when when i've hunted sharp tail they flush really fast Mm -hmm. and part of that i think is because they get shot at so much where i hunt them that if there's any sign of a person they're kind of getting out but i could imagine they're also noisy little bastards so you can kind of find them when you're in like little coolies you'll hear them chirping around Mm -hmm. and then you can start moving slow Speaking of that, I still got a grouse in the freezer. I I should try to eat that today. You should probably eat that should. Today. Fry it up. My favorite Before recipe it a science is like experiment. a literally. My favorite recipe is like a grouse Alfredo. Make a homemade Alfredo sauce and shred up the grouse, and oh, so good. The only problem is if it's a grouse that doesn't taste very good, then you got a whole pot full of bad tasting grouse Alfredo. Because sometimes could, those keep animals the meat just... on the side though. <laughs> okay, okay, that's true. <laughs> I know you've had an experience where you did that and the grouse just wasn't the best grouse you've had. It was, yeah, sometimes it's hit and miss. Usually they're like supreme, such good meat. And then sometimes it's like, this is very strong. I don't know how to explain it. That's just, that's just wild game. It is. Yeah. Sometimes you get an old one or you get one. I mean, maybe it's sick. Maybe it's just not eating the best food. Who knows? Just sometimes they just don't taste like the rest. Literally. Part of it. <laughs> so hopefully, yeah. Hopefully they all taste good. Hopefully, especially with like big game. I mean, it sucks to shoot like a really old elk and just have your elk taste kind of off. Mm-hmm. You're just like, well, I got 200 pounds of this meat that's yeah. going to just taste a little bit off. I'm going to have to <laughs> the heck out of it. That's when you make a lot of tacos and chili. <laughs> like, a lot of tacos, a lot of chili. Just make it all into sausage. Do yeah. something with a lot of <laughs> a lot of seasoning in there. I had a mule deer that I shot a couple of years ago. It's been several years now. But um, it was like that. I had the first couple backstrap pieces, and it was very, very gamey. Which, don't get me wrong, I don't mind it. I can handle it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I ended up making a lot of it into sausage, like jalapeno cheddar sausage. Those were great. but There's nothing wrong with that Mm-mm. either. Like I, I've made a lot of animals into sausage, and... Oh my gosh, I eat a full package of sausage a week when yeah. I do that. It's so good, and it's still a really useful way to do it. I mean, just because an animal maybe doesn't taste the best doesn't mean that it's like, oh, well, that's not a good species to hunt, or like, I, I shouldn't eat any of this meat. You just got to know different ways to cook it that'll kind of hide some of that flavor if it's one that just doesn't taste great um, cooked in, like, steaks. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'd say when steak, you... Yeah. 
when you're like raised around hunting and eating wild game, you have a little bit more of a tolerance for it. Oh but yeah. Like my <laughs> girlfriend, um, her dad did hunt, but they didn't eat a ton of wild game anyway. So she doesn't have much tolerance for it. So I definitely have to <laughs> find like recipes that yeah, like kind of yeah. hide some of it. Or just treat her with some real, real good whitetail steaks or something that's just kind of practically beef. I think elk is the best. Elk is the most mild, even over ah, whitetail, I, I really do. That last whitetail, uh, yeah, Eric and I just finished eating that. Um, no, no, we had his elk, so we ate that a while ago. But mm-hmm. it was, yeah. those steaks were really good. Oh, yeah. I, I remember the first time we cooked them, I forgot to season the steaks. And I realized that about like two thirds of the way eating through dinner. I was like, wow, I didn't even season these. And they were still just yeah, really good. Now I had wrapped the steaks in bacon when I'd cooked them and then taken the bacon off. So there's oh, a little bit of fatty so juice in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're delicious. Man, it's just making my mouth water. I know. <laughs> no kidding. No, I'm getting hungry. I haven't eaten breakfast yet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's definitely something so, I've been like really looking into is those like cooking catching cooking stuff mm-hmm. style that's definitely that's fun yeah so kevin take your son grouse hunting moral of the story yeah <laughs> from this little bit of rabbit hole about <laughs> yeah. food oh yeah but rabbit yeah. holes are the name of the game man we go down them that is the game <laughs> so let's let's switch gears a little bit let's talk a little bit about uh let's talk about ethics you know might as well get into it yeah. yeah yeah what are ethics what are ethics so like we want to talk about a little bit about fair chase and maybe going beyond fair chase so first thing would be i'd say like effective range what would you guys say are like the most effective range for bow and rifle and let's get into that um well i would say number one is going to kind of come down to the shooter um, because it's going to be different, you know, if you've ever watched Steve or Remy or Cam Haynes, they spend thousands of hours behind their bows. So their effective range is probably further than mine is for sure. I would say they had definitely have a more effective range. Um, typically I don't see an effective range with a bow on an elk outside of 60. Um, and that's for me. Um, some people disagree and that's kind of for them to choose and behind their skill level, but. For me, I, I won't push it beyond 60. I, I mean, I'd prefer anything um, around 25 below, to yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 30. Um, but that's just that's kind of a limit that I place on myself where I'm confident. I do shoot quite a bit. Um, I know my accuracy at 60. I know you know the weighted, the grain of my arrow, the grain of my broadheads. I know what they're kind of capable of. And then I'm just kind of looking at it as this is a big animal and anything beyond 50 really, but beyond 60, I'm just really increasing the chances that something goes wrong, whether that animal takes a step, whether I'm just not getting enough penetration, my shot's a little off, there's a little bit of a breeze that's going to affect my arrow. There's a lot more variables um, as you increase your range. So for me, just taking all that into account and knowing how much time I spend with my bow um, my effective range is no greater than 60. I'm going to be taking shots under 60, um, and I'm going to be trying to take those 30, 40, 20, those kind of shots. Eric, I know you don't have a lot of archery experience. What is your? What would you say your effective range is with a rifle? Sure. So 
usually I sighted my rifles at 100 yards. And especially in North Idaho, I was in a lot of thick timber, so there wasn't much, like, you could get kind of tough to shoot over 200 sometimes just because, you know, there's just so many branches and stuff, but there's definitely cases if you're in a wide open field. So I know personally I haven't really shot tons over even 100 yards. I just haven't, you know, up until probably a few years ago, I wasn't I'm super invested in the hunting like I am now. So I definitely want to probably spend some more time on the range so I can increase my comfort level to like at least 200. But right now I probably, yeah, I'm not super experienced with it. So I'd probably say my comfort level is probably like one to 200 yard range. And you know, that's definitely something I want to work on and get comfortable with. So that way I know I can put a tart, get on an animal and know I'm going to reliably shoot in this small little area versus like, well, well, anything over 150 is your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) So that's probably where I stand with rifle shooting. For sure. I'd say uh, for like my effective bow range, I'm going to be, I wouldn't push it past 60 like Gabe. And that's if I have a very clear open path. Mm-hmm. 50, I want to get 50 and below. And obviously shorter than that if, if we can. Um, rifle, I'll, I'd say the farthest I'd shoot is probably about 600. Uh, my rifle will reach out there and I have a good scope and everything. Um, but I wouldn't shoot past 600 yards for sure. There you go. Yeah, I just haven't even tested my rifle limits yet, so that's something I'd like to do in this off-season of hunting. Yeah. That's another good point, Um, especially when it comes to rifles. um, It's important to, like, check the specs on your your ammo, for say, because they're going to give you your bullet drop and your foot-pounds of force that your bullet has. And so, like, rule of thumb for elk is you need 1,500 foot-pounds of energy to kill an elk. Um, That's kind of like a general rule of thumb, obviously, it's it doesn't work like if you have 1499 you're going to hit that elk and it's not going to kill it um there, there's a lot more behind it than that um, but yeah you hit stuff like that mm-hmm. but typically the general rule of thumb in the elk hunting community is you you want 1500 foot pounds of energy um to kill an elk um ethically or effectively um and so the first thing you can do is just go to your box of bullets and say okay when does my gun lose that 1500 foot pounds and that should be like my max range um and so obviously different calibers are going to have you know different um rates at which they lose energy and different yardages where they lose that energy and you're going to have bullet drop to take into effect um and so a lot of like the ethics um, of this uh, with a rifle comes just your equipment you know if you've got a good scope that has a dial system that you're comfortable with where you can dial on at 400 um you're gonna probably it's gonna be more of a um, an ethical shot than if you don't have a dial and maybe you're just trying to gauge 22 inches of drop um it's it's going to be maybe a little less ethical and maybe make you question if you want to take that shot or try to get a little closer um so a lot of it comes with your equipment and then just your comfort using that equipment um mm-hmm. and like knowing your rifle knowing your scope knowing your abilities as a shooter as to what an ethical shot distance is yeah i know there's there's people out there that put like you said, like campaigns and then they're, they're bow hunters, but there's also like rifle hunters mm-hmm. that are going to, that are putting thousands of hours behind their rifle and they could shoot a penny at a thousand yards. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just about your skill. Um, and that'll really translate over the more hours you put in, the better you're going to get at something just like everything, you know? 
And that's sure. an interesting question that I'll pose just kind of off the top of my head. Is, is there an ethics where it becomes unethical to shoot past a certain distance because maybe you're like almost negating fair chase? Like your equipment's so good, your your gun's so good that you're shooting 800 yards or 1,000 yards and the animal doesn't even have a chance to like know you're looking at it. Um, is that ethical if you're pretty much have stuff that's so nice that the animal doesn't stand a chance like you don't have to actually be a hunter you're more of just a shooter in that scenario um and you don't have to have any real hunting skill other than spotting the animal it's just an interesting question that i kind of want to hear your opinions on i would think it just depends really it really does depend if if you have an animal at a thousand yards i would never shoot that far no. First of all, no. This is like extreme. Obviously, you're like a hypothetical. Like, no, if you had the ability, yeah. If, if you could get closer, for sure, you want to get within 300 yards, no matter mm-hmm. what. But if it's not possible, oh, it just depends. You know, I'd say yes and no. Hmm. Hmm. Well, my concern is, let's say you d- you take the shot and you wound it, and it goes running off. You are a thousand yards behind a wounded animal at that moment and you got to figure out where it goes you know by the time you get to that point how far has it gone in what direction yeah mm-hmm. that's when your tracking skills come into play hopefully right. you get a follow-up shot definitely but, you but as for, yeah go ahead oh sure i was just gonna say, but as for fair chase that is tough because you like the animal has no idea you're there but then on the other hand what if you know you stocked up the animal with a bow at 30 yards and that animal has no idea you're there. Mm-hmm. Now that's different reasons it doesn't know you're there because 30 yards versus a thousand yards. That's, I don't know. That's a definitely an interesting question. Yeah. I don't, that's I don't know jam. if there's a, a totally correct answer. I would say mm-hmm. the, the cleanest kill you can give an animal is going to be the best. If right. that's going to be at 30 yards, sure. If that's going to be at 200 yards, that's great. If it's going to be a little farther and you're confident and you're can- you're capable of doing it, sure. Yeah, that's kind of my opinion on it too. Um, um, like if you could e- ethically shoot an animal at 1,000, which is, you know, maybe 0.1% of the population, if, if that many, if that... Um, and you could do that, then that, I mean, I'm not going to argue against that if you can do that ethically. Um, but for me, that's just not why I'm there. Um, I'm there to like be in the hunt, um, get as close as I can personally, because that makes me more ethical hunter. Um, mm-hmm. my shot, my shots get better the closer I am. I feel like I do the animal a little more justice personally doing that because I know my shot placement is going to be better, but also I'm there for that excitement of getting close to the animal, getting within that range, kind of interacting with these animals. Um, I'm there to fill my freezer, but I'm there for the experience too. Um, and so that's, that's just kind of my take on it. Um, but I don't think there's necessarily a right answer there. Yeah. I don't either. It's kind of that gray area. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah for sure. That brings in like technologies that mm-hmm. are, that are new. Um, there's like, uh, thermal imaging that, so like, I think, a lot of people use it for hog hunting, which we don't have that in Montana. Big. Or like coyote hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, is that fair, Chase? It's interesting what animals we allow to have fair chase. Um, mm-hmm. Coyotes are varmints. 
hogs are varmints and I, I i don't disagree with them using it for hogs the hogs have caused such an ecological disaster that we need to kill as many of them as we can i mean they reproduce i mean one um sow can have i don't know what is it like 10 to 20 piglets per birth it's a lot and it, and they I can do that three times a year yeah they can do it three times a year so they can grow so rapidly that we need to control their populations um so they do stuff that's way worse than using thermal imaging to kill those things um that i can see a little bit more discussion of ethics when they're blowing them up um, <laughs> yeah, in sure. batches of 20 um, right but if you're hunting them with uh you know with thermal imaging i don't i don't find that um too detrimental i don't do much hunting for coyotes i don't really like killing a bunch of animals and um i don't see that many coyotes honestly um, i don't either so when i see them mm-hmm. i just kind of watch them um there's a lot of squirrels there's a lot of rabbits i don't see them like overrunning anything or hurting the ecosystem where i'm at i know a lot of people shoot them so i'm not totally um for using thermal imaging the thermal scopes and stuff for like coyotes i don't even know if you can in montana i think there's pretty strict fair chase laws here on what you're allowed to use and what you're not allowed to use but like for the hogs when they're when it's really affecting all the other animals in the ecosystem especially when it's an introduced species that's Very causing invasive, all this havoc yeah. and yeah um, i think you got to get rid of them however you can so if that's using thermal stuff um then so be it and they i think they do eat a lot of those hogs and i've heard they're pretty good so if you can like yeah. give that meat to like homeless shelters or something and really like use those hogs for some good i think that's pretty pretty important absolutely yeah that's interesting as well there's other things like um you could argue that a rangefinder isn't fair chase i i don't i don't personally believe so but like all these technological technological advancements are making it mm-hmm. more difficult for the animal to get away and but mm-hmm. much easier for us to harvest right. um but i think at the end of the end of the day things that are going to make it to where the animal has an easier death mm-hmm. and it's I don't, I don't know how to vocalize it but anything that's going to make it a little bit easier on the animal to die is going to be better yeah yeah so like easier to for the animal to be killed humanely and efficiently yes. rather than something that helps you find the animals in the first place per se yes okay yeah i mean if i'm pulling my rangefinder out my rangefinder's max range is a thousand yards, mm-hmm. um, and so I know when it's a thousand yards, I'm not shooting. But usually, when I get to the point where I'm pulling my rangefinder out, I'm gonna shoot. So, if I'm already at that point, it makes it way more ethical if I know I'm at 300 yards compared to 240. That's gonna affect my shot with my rifle by you know a couple inches. Right. So, at that point, I'm going to be shooting at that animal. Um, so the rangefinder's helping me shoot at it the most accurate that I can, um, the most ethically that I can. So I don't, I don't think that's against fair chase. Cause if I'm pulling my rangefinder out, I'm already so close, like lead's going to be flying. So yeah. let's put it on the most accurate spot I can. And that rangefinder is going to help me do that. For yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause that helps you just have that confidence in your shot rather than, you know, maybe you're estimating a little off and because of that, you wound the animal instead of knowing, oh, it's exactly at 300 yards. So I know where I need to put my shot to mm-hmm. make sure it's the best placement. Now, my question is this. So I know trail cameras have been kind of a hot subject lately. Too, yeah. 
So what are your guys' thoughts on trail cameras then? Because I know I definitely, I'm fine with people using them in the off season, but personally, I, like, I think where I would draw the line is when people are using them kind of like a drone where you can do, where you can see where the animals are currently and then just go running over there to go shoot one. What, what do you guys think? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, satellite trail cameras should not be legal, especially in the hunting season, outside the hunting season, sure. Um, mm-hmm. But Montana does have those rules. You you can't have satellite mm-hmm. cameras that go straight to your phone in hunting season, which is very good. But I definitely think it's it should be regionally. So Montana, there's a high populations, but like low densities in areas. So right. if you can use those trail cameras that you go out going out and checking and kind of try to help pattern them pattern the animals i think that's fine but places like arizona and utah where they're going to congregate at those water holes and you know they're going to be there um i don't think that that is ethical i would say because you know exactly the animals that are going to be there is it even hunting at that point you know it's yeah that that's kind of my thoughts yeah. Now I've got a curveball to throw at you, but I can wait till we're done with hunting trail cameras. But I've got a curveball for you guys. Okay. Gabe, so what are your thoughts on trail cams? That's an interesting point. Like I, I have a lot of trail cams. I just bought three more this off season and got another one as a gift. So, um, I'm all loaded up on cameras. And, um, I mean, I spent thirty plus days in the woods this year, and I didn't get an elk, and I had cameras up all year. So it doesn't just mean having a camera up is going to get you an animal. Um, mm-hmm. I'll be the first person to say it. we've had cameras up for a lot of years and seen a lot of really cool stuff um, and still not been able to get on animals. So, and we're not using satellite cameras. So like for my cameras, my camera was about a mile ish in. And so in the morning I, I walked in in the dark, I hunted all the way to the camera and then I would check the camera to see if anything had been there in the last two weeks. So I could have walked all the way in there and seen that there hadn't been an animal on that trail in two weeks and I'm pretty much hunting a spot with no animals and I wouldn't know that until I walked in there. Um, so I don't think that was unethical because I still had Mm -hmm. to hunt in there and the camera just showed me you just wasted two hours getting in here because there's no animals in here. Um, so, um, sometimes you get really lucky. Uh, like one of the days I was in there and I looked at my camera and there was a nice bull on the camera, but that was like two nights before. So that could have been anywhere. Yeah. But it was cool to see that, okay, there have been elk in this spot. So I'm hunting a spot that elk are present, but it's still hunting, um, especially where I'm kind of hunting, like Jay said, high populations, low densities. So I'm just trying to pinpoint draws that elk are using so I know where to start trying to chase them. But they're all really smart. They're still really hard to come by. It's thick timber, so even in rifle season, you're having to pretty much jump them out of their beds um, to hunt them. It's it's really difficult hunting. So it, for me, it hasn't made my hunting easier. It's just showed me that there are animals in the places that I'm hunting. Um, so I, I really haven't, uh, reaped the rewards of it being non-fair chase. Cause I don't have any meat in my freezer, uh, to prove that it's not fair chase. And I mean, I've just seen some really cool stuff. I've seen bulls bugling on my cameras. I've seen, you know, uh, cows running out of the field, deer, my brother's got wolves, um, bears, really cool stuff. Just that I think is really cool to have. I mean, I multiple times will just go back and look through my folders of all my pictures of the elk that I was seeing and 
for me, especially now, it's going to give me kind of a way to track elk. I'm going to put cameras up in the same spots. And it'll be really cool to see, like, the bull that I was chasing last, last year. If I see him again this year, I'll see him a year older, see his new antlers, see, yep. be able to compare him to old pictures and be like, kind of just keep a track on his life because, uh, I mean, it's just a way to kind of peek into the animals' lives. Um, and when they're not satellite based, you still have to put the work in. You still have to walk in. You still have to follow all your hunting, hunting techniques as if there was no camera there. You, you still have to hunt your way in. You still have to be mindful of your wind. You still have to be mindful of, of your surroundings. So I, I'm for trail cams that are non-satellite based. Um, the satellite cameras, um, you know, I, I have some relatives who have them and they've got some really cool stuff on them. Um, but I, I don't know any person at least who's told me that they've been using a satellite camera and got an animal because of that. But I don't think they should be used during the season because that does give you a strict advantage knowing exactly when an animal's at your camera. Um, but when you have to walk in and get your cameras um, and check your cameras in the field and do all that, um, I mean, even checking cameras in the field, you got to open it, you got to put it in your phone, you're making noise doing that. You're uh, There's downsides to checking your camera in the field rather than just slipping the SD card out and checking it um, at your car. So I, I don't really f- feel that it's unethical to have cameras out um, as long as you're not doing it like with your satellite cameras i like your points that you brought up um yeah you you still have to put in the work you still got to go out there and hike uh, mm-hmm. you're still doing more than what a lot of the hunters especially where we are mm-hmm. hunting are doing a lot of them are just scoping from the road and you're still getting out there you're busting your butt and uh yeah absolutely yeah and my cameras are in spots where you could never see anything from the road. So I'm getting pictures of stuff that tons of people won't see. And I think, I mean, if you're putting your camera somewhere where you can see it from the road, I think that's kind of a waste of the camera. You, Absolutely. You can see that stuff from the road. Right. Well, it's not like you put up your camera and then you get a phone notification. Elk just triggered your camera. And you're like, okay, let's get in the race and let's go find him real <laughs> yeah. quick, guys. <laughs> and I know people do do some of that stuff. Um after, I mean, like the Forest Service will cut down cameras during the season if they're like satellite cameras. Um, and, and there's some different stuff there. Uh, I've heard of stories of FWP doing that. And I've looked through the laws and I don't see any laws that there's a season where you can't have your cameras up. Um, the, the, it's a good point. Like we have um, wintering ranges here in Montana that you're not allowed to access um, because they don't want you pushing animals off. So if I don't think it's illegal to have your camera on there during the wintering season, but you can't go in and get your camera because it's just like shed hunting. It's not that they don't want you picking up the sheds during that time. It's that they don't want you pushing the animals out of their wintering range. So if you put it up there um, during that like season, during that wintering range, which in Montana, I think goes till May or June, depending on mm-hmm. the area, um, mm-hmm. then you don't have access to that camera from the beginning of winter until May or June when you can go back and get it. So that's kind of an important note um, that those areas specifically kind of have some different regulations that you need to be aware of. Yeah, and it's for good reason they put in those mm-hmm. regulations because you know those animals they're out in that winter weather they're scrounging like looking for any food they can get you know they're trying to put out minimal amount of energy so they can mm-hmm. retain as much for the winter and to have a bunch of people snowmobiling in there that's going to stress them out scare them and maybe it scares them from their only food source or their only water source that time of the year and that can cause a population's number to crash. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's good reasons for it. I like the, those points. What's yeah. your what's So you guys are ready for a curveball? Yeah. Oh yeah. So my curveball is 
we say using you know cameras and stuff like trail cameras we're fine using those but the live feed ones maybe not so much my curveball is what about fish finders because those tell you exactly where if using sonar and stuff or even like photo like i think like actual cameras down there what do you guys thoughts on fish finders because you can see oh no fish here let's go somewhere else hey there's the fish let's go catch him or i think that's think? completely fine because you can't get in the water I mean, you can't see in the water. It's going to help you a little bit. I, I think they're completely fine. It's funny. Like, I've used fish finders before and dropped stuff right in front of that fish and not had them bite, yeah. like, multiple times. So even if you know where the fish are, like, it, it's still you got to have the right magic sauce for the day, whatever right. whatever they're biting them. Um, and, again, fish are just, like, looked at a little differently than animals There's for whatever reason. more of them, too. And there's a lot of fish. Um, yeah. But that, that is an interesting point on fair chase. And I guess that just kind of comes down again to like personal preference, whether you feel like. For sure. You see, I don't have a fish finder, so maybe I'm a little bitter, but yeah, I would like to get one. <laughs> they're expensive, man. They are. But man, they're awesome when you have one because then mm-hmm. there's some fish, like you said, Jay, you would have no idea because you can't see or, you know, like perch. They're just mm-hmm. very infamous for having a really light bite and sometimes you don't even know they're hitting and they could be like crazy so yeah i just figured i'd ask you guys what your thoughts are on that one of the lakes we fish has a lot of salmon in it and um the salmon in that lake are notorious for just doing pass bys um and not you know sometimes perch if you get on perch you'll get on a school and they'll sit there and bite for hours because the school is just kind of sitting there but these salmon drive by and so really you got like a 10, 10 second window to see them coming in and reel yeah. up into that range and give them a shot. So if you didn't have a fish finder, you'd never even know they passed by. So unless your hook was right at the right level, because um, <laughs> they're usually sitting in one like two to three foot range of the water column. So they'll be swimming from like 27 to 30 feet. And if you're sitting with your hook at 32, they won't even go out of that swim path to go for it. So yeah, um, I guess it just gives you an opportunity. Um, and, and with fish, it, it's different. Like with elk tags, you get one elk tag. You get one bear tag. You get one deer tag. Fish, you got a limit of 10 a day. Um, right. And so I, I guess there is like a little bit, you, there's a lot, there are a lot more plentiful resource that you have more access to. So I guess I can see like what Jay was saying there. Yeah. You're going to have more, more opportunity. And so it's kind of less important um, that you can see where they're at. No, I like the way you explained it. And it's kind of funny too, because that same body of water we're talking about, I was at a local sportsman store and I was asking them like, oh, hey, is the bike going on there? And he's like, oh, it's at the time. I think it's it's fair. And I'm like, okay, do you need a fish finder or anything? He's like, yeah, I wouldn't bother fish, not fishing there if you don't have a fish finder. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, maybe he, maybe I'm just going to get lucky. And I tried it. And yeah, I didn't even, I couldn't even tell if I had a fish swim by the whole day or not. And like you said, it, that water, it's 40 foot water column. And those fish can be in like two feet of that water column. And then that's the question is what? two feet are they in the surface are they at the bottom middle and you know those fish finder stuff it can help and you can only have a certain amount of poles and tip-ups mm-hmm. in your That's area anywhere too. so anyway so like you can't really judge exactly where they are with mm-hmm. just those few you know what i mean and right. that's a challenge i was fishing and just fishing in general too yeah it's no like, kidding it's a it's a it's a bigger guessing game than hunting at least hunting you have some incentive on yourself that if you put in work you you have a little bit better chance and you can get to a spot where you can glass long ways but fishing you're just like 
well, this spot feels good. Yeah. And if I don't have a fish finder, I'm just yeah. putting it down and hoping it is. No kidding. Man, I put so much effort in this ice season and I only caught two fish. Yeah. What gives? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Fly fishing's a little easier and like river mm-hmm. fishing because you can really find where the fish are hanging out in those deep holes. It's, and I mean, it's a little easier. You're right. looking at maybe six feet of water in the deepest spots, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit deeper, but you're kind of yeah. there. The fish are limited and they're. I mean, especially fly fishing, if they're hitting dry flies and you know to just throw something on top. Right now, at this time of year, if you're throwing little like San Juan worms in or um, streamers or beadheads, um, getting it halfway in the water column, you got a decent chance because the fish got to eat every day. Yeah. So, um, and that's yeah. why I love fly fishing. You, you just seem to have better luck with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I know Big Hole River has usually pretty good Mother's Day. Was it stonefly hatch, I think? Yeah, they got a good stone fly. They got a good salmon fly hatch. The hopper season is always good. I love fishing with oh, hoppers. Yeah. So I got an interesting question for Jay. Just a retort on his game cam before we move on. Because um, yes. you, you said you didn't think it was ethical to put like those cameras up on watering holes where you know everything's going to be. Where it's going to actually congregate, yeah. So is it unethical to hunt those places if you're, you're not supposed to put a cam up? Because cam, you're just getting pictures at that point. Um and I'm assuming this is a camera without um, satellite mm-hmm. that you're just checking pictures. But wouldn't okay. you like strategically hunt those places too? Because you know that's where the animals are going to congregate, and it gives you the best chance. You would, um, but like I, I do feel like there is a little bit of an unfair advantage with trail cams in places like Arizona, just because I don't know. It, it does kind of take away. It, like the it demystifies what animals are there it just makes it to where it's just a little more easier i don't know i feel like it, it gives you a, a significant advantage yeah it's just a just a tough question yeah i mean it's interesting too because i there's someone i follow on instagram who's an outfitter i think in utah and they have their camera up on a watering hole with mm-hmm. its video on, and they have some amazing videos of that bull running cows around and screaming yeah. his head off. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's really cool. Without a trail cam, you'd never have those videos or images um, of some of those events. Um, I mean, some of those people are just photographers who who put up trail cams just because right. they're trying to photograph nature, and that's a For really sure. cool way to do it. Um, and that's why they're making trail cams with better. Um, you know, sensors so you can get better pictures. Because, I mean, realistically, you're getting pictures out to, like, maybe 30 yards off the trail camera. And usually they're... You're just trying to get a picture good enough to tell what kind of animal it is half the time. I mean, cameras are getting better now, but sometimes you're just like, I just want to see if it's an elk. (laughs) It's one of their elk walking through. I know that there are some some loopholes, especially in in Utah. Uh, You can't use trail cams to for the purpose of harvesting game or for Mm -hmm. like locating elk and deer. Mm -hmm. But people are like putting them out for bird watching, quote unquote, (laughs) literally. And, uh, oh, there might be an elk here. Sorry, it was on my bird cam. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting how they, how they did that. It's also interesting here, like even during season. So first off, the places we hunt have bad cell service. So your camera can't really even go that many places. It's just kind of an interesting thing for me to think about because even if I had during the season a satellite camera up and I was 
first I, I'm it's very unlikely I'm going to have service where the camera is and where my camp is if I'm mm-hmm. in the field. And mm-hmm. if not, I'm sitting at home. So even if I see an elk is at my camera, the chances of me getting there and an elk being there that next day are so low. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that I agree that those cameras should be used during the season. I don't think so. But even here, it's it's really difficult, even if you've got a satellite camera, to like still not have that fair chase aspect. Other than the fact that you know where that animal is, like you still got to hunt it in most places. And the, the animals around here it, yeah. don't sit still. They yeah. move all day long and they're in different spots. Um, I think it's more of an issue, especially in places where people own property. And I know they like to put those trail cameras up sort of as like a defense against their property. It's just like a security system where something just walked in my camera four. I know where that camera's at. Something just walked in front of it. You can see if it was a person. But when you're sitting in your house and you're on your property and then you see a deer walks by and you're like, I am two minutes away from that deer and I know which way it's going. Then, I mean, I can see where that definitely gets people more opportunities on animals when they're in that kind of situation. But like here, I, I the place I hunt is typically like a 45 minute drive to where I park from my house. And then I'm at least a half hour walk into where my cameras are. So even if I had a camera there, I'm a, an hour and a half away. And Literally. if it's like. Yeah, it's most likely going to be beaming me at like three in the morning. So even if I get there, I got another two, three hours before light. And it's just I'm I'm probably still not going to have a chance on that. But just kind of an interesting point that I kind of wanted to talk about. It's I I think cameras that don't have satellites are good. That's if you want to know my perspective, I think they're fine. Yeah. It's uh, another thing is like in those areas they're really targeting water holes and mm-hmm. there's very few water. There's very little water around. Yeah. That's limiting resource. So it's limiting easy resource. to know where they have to go here in Montana. Right. It's like basically anywhere they could be, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, stuff like that. Yeah. Water, food, just Shelter. run away from the wolves at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys think it's okay to shoot a bedded animal? I think it's ethical. I think it's up to you whether you want to take that shot because that's a difficult shot. The vitals move around compared to where Mm -hmm. they're standing. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not where you expect them. So I think, I don't think it's unethical to shoot a bedded animal, but I think there's a lot more that goes into it than just aiming at the same spot. So you have to, you have to be comfortable again with that shot. Um, I typically don't shoot bedded animals. I like for them to stand up. Um, because I'm more comfortable with where the vitals sit on those shots. Right. No, I agree. Because if you, if, you know, animals, when they bed down, ideally they're going to bed down in a spot where the wind is blowing to them so they can smell anything going on. Or if the wind's not blowing, they'll sit in the thickest of timber and stuff to where if anything tries to make a move on them, they're going to be able to hear it and be on the defense and ready to run if they need to. They'll have those so I think if, routes. Exactly. So if you're able to sneak up on it and get in a position where you can get the shot because, hey, I found this animal bedded down and I stocked up on it and was not and was able not to alert it. That's a fair chase. You were able to stock on it. But then that comes back in that thousand yard question. Like if you see an animal bedded at a thousand yards and you take the shot, like you said, Gabe, those organs are going to be sitting in a different spot. And is it ethical? I mean, if you know exactly where they should be, but if they aren't there, I don't know. It's, I definitely think it's, if you're stocking up on that bedded animal, it's fine. It's definitely that shot though. Cause you gotta be aware it's gonna be a little different. 
I personally think it's fine. Um, I do see the, the argument of it not being fine because they're not able to run away and you can definitely rack in another shell or get another arrow off. But that also gives you a greater chance of harvesting the animal. But yeah, that also... could be considered more ethical because you get almost two guaranteed shots yeah. compared to mm-hmm. one, and that's most likely going to kill the animal faster. And like, generally it's... on your first shot, you're going to be more nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might pull it. You might Something might go wrong. So it, it might be better to have a second shot. But it also gives the animal, like, there's no, no way for it to escape. Like it's it's gonna take longer. I've never shot a bedded animal, but if I had the opportunity, I would for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. Yeah, I've never shot a bedded animal. Interesting. I'll I'll tell a quick story about a bedded animal that I shot in a second. Um, but like when animals bed, that's typically when they feel they're safest. They don't bed in somewhere where they feel pressure, um, because otherwise they're just gonna keep moving. Because it does put them at a disadvantage, and they know that having to get up could be the difference between life and death if a wolf's running in or a bear. So they're not going to bed unless they feel safe. So if you get to a point where that animal feels safe and beds in front of you, like you're doing your job as a hunter, you're being quiet, you're playing your wind, you're, you know, you're not letting it see you, you're doing all the right things. So I don't think you should be punished for that by that being considered unethical as long as you're taking the right, the right shot and making an ethical shot um, because you did everything you're supposed to do as a hunter if you're able to get a shot on a bedded animal um again it just comes to the anatomy the the animal i shot and this was in my youth so and i'm still i feel bad about it um and i there were a couple different things that went wrong here i didn't have a range finder so i was guesstimating at the range and so i didn't aim high enough um but it was bedded and it had its legs tucked in right up against its vitals so when i shot i hit its leg in front of its vitals and it broke the leg but didn't penetrate through the vitals. Now, I mean, I got a bullet in it quickly and it died. Um, but the first shot wasn't fatal because of the way it was laying, the way it tucks its legs in it. It does make it a much more difficult shot. Um, and so you just got to kind of be aware of that. And it's, it was a very, it was a learning moment for me. And um, now I know and can recognize that better where that's sitting. And if I had a range finder, maybe I could have aimed a little bit higher and put it right in the sweet spot um so it's a lot of it's just you know an ethical shot at the end of the day if you can put the bullet exactly where you want it to go then there it's hard to argue against that um because that's going to kill an animal no matter what position it's in standing bedding sitting bears will sit down and you can still get shots on sitting bears and stuff so um yeah again just being aware of the anatomy and then knowing i mean it really just comes down to hitting exactly where you want to hit um, and if you can do that, then the, you're gonna. It's gonna be hard to be unethical that way. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely think the biggest thing for ethical hunting is just being able to learn and be aware of mm-hmm. your limitations, your abilities, and then just getting like you have an experience where shoot, maybe I didn't take that animal mm-hmm. down as ethically as I can. What do I need to learn to do better next mm-hmm. time? That's the biggest thing, you know. If you're if you just don't care, you're just like, eh, I'll just shoot the animal anyways. Oh sweet, I got it down only had to put four rounds into it and it ran 20 yards or 100 yards or whatever you know i think that's definitely a key difference between the ethical and unethical Mm -hmm. hunter you're wanting to get that animal down as quickly as you can while the unethical hunter let's just put as many rounds into it as i need to yeah that also kind of brings up like uh when to shoot 
like mm-hmm. a bedded, bedded animal, their vitals are going to be in a different spot. And uh, like I know it's especially important in archery. You want to have the perfect shot because you're probably only going to get mm-hmm. one. So you're, yep. you don't want those quartering, quartering two shots. Um, yeah, how do you guys feel about taking a quartering two shot, I guess? Quartering away is fine because you're going to pass through yeah. behind the guts and into the vitals. But uh, I think quartering two is a little sketchy, especially during archery. I've never taken a quartering two, and I don't plan on it. And then, I mean, that's... You, you just, you're going to have to punch through something, pretty much. Your margin for arrow is as thin as it gets, yeah. other than uh, ass to your shot, which is just, you, you can't take that shot, obviously. Uh, no Texas heart shots from this group. Um, but according to, I mean, your, your shoulders taking up the majority of your field of view over that vitals. And, I mean, bullets are great. Um, arrows are great, but it's hard to penetrate just a straight shoulder, especially at that angle. The shoulders literally angled to deflect stuff down the side of the animal or towards the front of the animal. I watched a video of a guy who shot a bull quartering two and the arrow hit right on the shoulder, right on the front of the shoulder as it was quartering two. And it pretty much just skinned the animal down the side as it deflected um, inside the skin. So you couldn't see the arrow. Um, he didn't find this until he, he had to put another arrow in it. it. Luckily, it stopped broadside and he was able to shoot it. But when he was gutting it, the arrow hadn't even gone inside the rib cage. Um, and so that animal would have been in extreme pain, but it would have lived through that. Um, I mean, I pretty much just got all the skin detached from its body on that side, but it yeah. was going to be able to run away. And um, that that I don't even know if that's physically possible in like a quarter or in a quartering away or. Um, I mean, I guess it would be if you hit far enough up on the shoulder, which, again, would just be a bad shot. Um, there are ways yeah, to do it. It's just very difficult. Yeah, it's it's bad news. You're going to have to... There's way more things that can go wrong than go right with that shot. Like, way more than any other shot. So I, I'm not I'm not about that life. <laughs> with a rifle, I think it's fine because you're going to have that penetration. It's going to go mm-hmm. right through the scapula, no problem. Yeah, What about and the other ones? The frontal shot is just something that I'm not comfortable with yet. Um, I've seen people do it and be really effective with it, um, yeah. and like kill animals within seconds. And, and again, that's you've got a small, you just got a small target. Um, and I don't think I've spent enough time behind my bow, especially to um, take that shot. Um, I would with take a rifle, it within. I would take it within twenty yards for sure. It's a it's a within twenty yards. Elk, it's a fairly big opening. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it's, it's just, yeah, you just don't want to hit the breastbone. No, yeah. if you hit the breastbone, it's just not going to penetrate at all. Yeah. So. Yeah, shot placement's a big deal. I mean, obviously, yeah. if you can, especially if you got a rifle and the animal's kind of out in the open, you can usually wait long enough to get a shot you're looking for, whether that's broadside, quartering away. Usually, they're walking around enough that you can get a shot that you're looking for. Um, in the timber, uh, like obviously it gets tougher. You're shooting lanes decrease. You, you don't have as much time between trees or that's with a rifle or a bow. So you kind of have to control yourself and kind of going in, you need to just be honest with yourself and tell you what you're willing to take. Even if a 400 class bull steps out, you can't take that quartering two shot. Like right. you just got to, sit there with yourself and be like it's 
it's going to suck to watch that animal walk away, but it's going to suck even more to watch it run away with an arrow in it, knowing that that arrow is not going to kill it because of the shot and that I'm going to have to kind of deal with that, um, that animal running away and possibly dying and me never finding it or running away and having an arrow stuck in it forever. Um, so yeah, just, you know, knowing your limits when you go out there and being disciplined when an opportunity comes along, but isn't like a, a good shot and just knowing to hold off on that. What other um, things with ethics would you say you guys want to touch on? There's a lot of places we could go. Yeah. Uh, Montana's a state that doesn't allow bear baiting, um, mm-hmm. but does allow wolf baiting. And other states do do allow bear baiting. Um, and so what do you guys think on the, the ethics of baiting uh, predatory animals? Um, I think it's fine. I think that uh, a lot of like the states that do allow baiting, I don't know if you can do it on national forest. You can definitely do it on private land. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think it could allow you to be more selective with your yield. And you could take those mature animals that are like those mature boars, bears that had, that kill a lot of fawns, that kill a lot of uh, like cubs. I think it's fine. I think it's still just as difficult. I mean, not as difficult, I would say, but it does allow you to be more selective and harvest that mature specimen. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of at a wash for it because on one hand, like you said, especially if it helps you get rid of like problem animals or like you're able to be picky with it, you know, picking out members of the population that helps. Maybe you're picking out a a bear that's known to like kill fawns, a lot of fawns of a deer and that helps the deer population or it kills a lot of cubs. And then that actually helps out the bear population. But then I don't know. There's a lot of times people get in trouble because they're just baiting animals with like dog food. You know, it's just stuff you buy. Like you can even buy deer corn. I remember it going to a Walmart not too long ago and they were selling deer corn. So I don't know. It's just kind of, I'm at a wash for it. Cause I don't necessarily agree with like, cause <laughs> But then I guess that's what's the difference though, like in the sense, in the sense that like you're baiting an animal because it's coming to an area expecting food. And then you go to an area where, you know, they come to eat on willows all the time. Is there a difference? Or I mean, obviously, yes. Because you expect them to respond to calls and come to calls. I mean, each time you're kind of giving them the illusion of something that's not necessarily free or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. You can't call bears. You can with uh. Well, with, I've uh, heard stories with fawn calls, and I've heard they're fawn scary. Calls and because I've heard uh, they come. Predator calls. calls. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard horror stories of people throwing those out there and having bears coming at full bore. Well, it's no, a predatory uh, response too, you know. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, I'm kind of, you know, for wolves here in Montana, it's more about population control. Wolves are so hard to hunt mm-hmm. that it just gives you a chance, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, again, we're trying to control the population. It's not it's not as much about getting meat with wolves as it is about making sure there's not 20 wolves running in your base and killing all the animals. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so as long as you're not wiping out, you know, packs of animals or whatever with it, um it's interesting. I'm not. I'm not a super big bait. I, I mean, I've never baited an animal, but neither have I. 
Mm-mm. And in uh, in Montana, I think the only animal you can bait are wolves right now, and that's like brand new legislation in the very, last like couple new. years. Um, so it, it's kind of new, and that'll be reevaluated. Um, but states like Idaho have bear baiting, like Minnesota has bear baiting, and it's not it hasn't adversely affected the population at all. I mean, that's well, they're still taking well, their yield. You know what I mean? They're still taking yeah. their quantity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're still hunting the right attacked way. animals. Yeah, yeah. And I, like Jay said, it, it definitely, I don't think you're allowed to do it on national forest land or state land. And I mean, obviously, it's unethical to do that on state land, and especially because you're putting other people at risk if you're doing it near trailheads. Then you're going to pull more predators into the into the area, and if people are walking those and stuff, you're going to be putting them at risk. And obviously, that's unethical, and you wouldn't want to do that because you're you know putting other people in harm's way or their pets or whatever it may be so right and that's not unethical for the animal that's unethical for other people exactly mm-hmm. yeah. yeah that's putting their the animals and unethical for the animal because you're putting the animal in a bad situation where all of a sudden a person and a dog yeah that's it, true and it's on a trail looking for food and now it's thinking it's got to defend its you know its food and then it you know lashes out in a defensive manner but that's going to get that bear killed um because yeah. it lashed out at, at people. So it's just, it's an interesting in, in Montana. I mean, bear hunting is really hard, so I understand why they do it, and I, I'm not totally against it. Um, but I do feel like we have enough opportunity fair chase style here that um, you, you should be able to get out and do that. And really, that's, I mean, for me, that's why I'm out there, to put my skills to the test. Um, you know, it's, a, it's always that big chess match against the animals you're hunting, so... There's nothing more fun than spot and stock or, you know, still hunting or just, just out there, like just you and the animal and you trying to outsmart that. Um, yeah. um, that's kind of why I'm there. So, yeah. And definitely be aware because some ethics are actually backed up by legal laws, like the baiting, but then there are some ethics that are just, you know, hunters decisions and there's no legal law. Cause I'm, and I might be wrong with this. Is it, I know turkeys, it is very unethical to shoot them when they're roosting, like, because that's their natural defense. I've heard it's pretty unethical. Now, what's the, I forget what the legality of it is. <laughs> There's no laws I, against it that I've heard. Yeah. So, you see, that's where it's the thing where it can be, you know, it's really, you know, there's some people that say it's, it is ethical. Some people say it isn't. It doesn't matter. It's definitely, it can be a hot subject, too. It's, so to me, aware, okay, it's kind of like that comparison true like born like true-blooded fly fishermen are completely against spinning rods right they're just like no spinning rods like you have to catch like you have to fly fish this you have to fly fish this is the only true way to catch fish and i think it's the same way with turkey hunting like there are a lot of really good turkey hunters who are just like you can't shoot them out of their roosts you've got to call them in you've got to you know i mean really you just got to call them in you got to stock um that's the only way to do it but i don't think it's it the only way it's illegal is in Montana in the fall, you can shoot turkeys with rifles. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you're shooting them into the tree in out of a tree, you're definitely not sure of your target and beyond. Yeah, um, right. Because you're sending that bullet into the air a long ways away. And so then you're putting other people at risk. So that's not legal and that's not ethical. Yeah. Um, if you're shooting with a shotgun, those BBs aren't going to go very far with a bow. Um, you, you probably shooting with like uh, judo points. Um, it's not going to go very far. So, legally it's fine um ethically it's just like whether you're fine and i I feel like it goes to like a a bedded animal maybe a little bit more so because literally that is their only way to escape their predators on the ground is to roost in the trees 
Um, it's interesting. It's interesting. For sure. And I'm not a very experienced turkey hunter, so I was just curious what your guys' thoughts were because, yeah, I haven't done a lot of turkey hunting at all. So, And I've, I've heard that zero. mostly... <laughs> yeah, and mostly what I hear is from other people. So, like, mm-hmm. and that's where it can get kind of interesting because sometimes ethics is definitely tied into personal opinion. Like it's you said, you yeah. know, with the definitely fishing example, opinion. that is something I'm really interested in because you get those avid fly fishermen that say catch and release only, don't keep what you catch. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they look down their noses at bait fishermen. But mm-hmm. in some cases, they found actually keeping the fish is more ethical because mm-hmm. you're put you know you're just taking that fish and let's say you're catching four fish and you decide that's my limit i'm done fishing for the day mm-hmm. you have impacted maybe let's just say six fish because two are you throw back or whatever but then that fly fisherman you know he's stressing out maybe eight fish he catches throughout the day and puts, mm-hmm. puts them back you know if he puts them back in a safe manner you know keeps the fish in the water doesn't stress them out that's very ethical because he's catch getting it in as fast as he can releasing it you know, if he's fighting and it's stressed out, the water's really hot and he's holding it out of the water for minutes at a time, that fish survivability goes way down. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, uh, but it, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's hard. And that's why everyone's going to have their own code of ethics. And there's kindly a kind of a general accepted code of ethics. And obviously there's legal ramifications for some, but a lot of it's just kind of what you're, you're willing to do. I, I've heard a story of a guy who always shoots turkeys out of their roost. Um, but he's just like, I want the turkey meat. I know exactly like a tree that they roost in. And he goes out like pretty much one day a year, shoots his turkey, and that's it. He doesn't yeah. impact the out, like he's not out there pushing animals around. He's not out there, you know, putting pressure on anything. Um, he shoots it during legal shooting light. He shoots it with a legal weapon. Um, and he just knows an area where they roost so he goes out one day a year shoots his turkey he's got his meat for the rest of the spring and, and that's all he does so it's it gets the point is that unethical um i don't know i don't know if that's unethical yeah. if he's not you know he's not damaging any other animals he's not leaving a bunch of marks on the this landscape he's just out there for a day pretty much t- tagging his turkey and leaving um so it's interesting on if that's ethical and i I, th- I do think that just comes down to personal choice of whether you pretty much whether you felt like that was fair um and kind of how you want to do that so i'm not going to tell people not to do any of that it's just kind of up to you but obviously follow the laws because that's yeah um i mean it's law so you have to yeah, follow at the end stuff. of the day law is final yeah it is yeah i don't know i I've never really turkey hunted at all, so mm-hmm. I don't know where I stand there. Um, maybe revisit it after a little while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see for sure. What we think because that is that less ethical than like I have um, a friend who lives near Lolo, and they have turkeys pretty much walking the roadways during the spring, like just walking around. And so, if you were to just park your car next to the road flush the turkey a hundred yards off the road and go shoot it right there is that is that ethical um legally that's following everything is that less ethical than shooting one in your in its roost i mean it it gets really nitty-gritty on what you think is ethical and what's not ethical and and those birds live around people they're more used to people it's kind of like the deer here in helena that live around helena um i mean they eat out of people's bird feeders all year long and so if they stray onto public land right outside of helena they're they're fair game 
Um, and so how ethical is it to shoot like almost a domesticated animal? I mean, there's, there's so many different ways that you can kind of get into it. Um, and I, again, it's just like how you personally feel about the experience you want, what you want to take away from, from hunting really. I think all of us agree that we go out there not so much for the kill. We go out there for the adventure. We go out there for the Mm -hmm. experience and the kill is the byproduct and the meat. Obviously we want the meat. And, uh, so I think we personally, we would all like err on the side of being more ethical and, Mm -hmm. uh, being like giving the animal a little more fair chase, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we really don't even put ourselves in tough situations. We hunt in some gnarly places where you got to work for everything you you got. So yeah. we we put ourselves in the in the best spot to have the most ethical kill. Right. Um, we don't we don't try to ride the boundary line between ethics and being unethical and non-ethical. We try to push ourselves as far into the ethical as we can to give ourselves the least room for error there. Try and stay out of that gray zone because you know once you pull that trigger. There's no going back. Exactly. Yep. And then the nature of where we hunt, it's just like automatically going to be more difficult, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think typically for us where ethics comes in is um, shot choice. Yep. Yeah. Because it's just we're going to get very limited opportunities at shots and sometimes you just got to pass up a shot because it didn't give the animal didn't give you a good shot, even though you have limited opportunities. And I think that's where we battle with ethics the most Absolutely. Um, because everything else we're on public land we're you know, we're not near roads. We're not near people. We're not putting anything else at risk. Um, it's yeah. just kind of me and the animal. Am I giving the animal the, the best um, death that I can in this situation? Am I giving myself the most ethical shot? I think that's where our dilemma usually comes in. Not these, on the border private land and all this stuff and that kind of deal absolutely shot distance shot placement that's uh that's where we sit for the most part mm-hmm. yeah and sometimes it's situational sometimes you just you want to make those most high percentage takes you know and it's yeah, it's tough like we're not saying these are easy because we've all been there where we're just like, you know what? My range is 300 and I'm not going to shoot past 300. I'm just going to take shots under that. And then you see that elk step out at 370 yards and you're just like 370. That's not so bad. That's, but <laughs> I mean, yeah. you got to know what you're comfortable with. If you're only comfortable to 300 and I mean, 370 is a significant difference. Um, 320 is not that much, you know, like, but 320 is not that much. And it's just, you know, holding yourself accountable. It's, I watched an episode of Meat Eater where um, Steve, I think multiple times, said on his podcast that 400 is his max range that he'll let himself shoot. And he's, I I think it was a mule deer. I, well, it was a mule deer. I'm just trying to remember the range. But he said that mule deer was six yards away from being too far, from, like where I would not shoot. I think it was a 394. And he's like, if that thing was at 401, I wouldn't have shot. I would have had to get closer. Um, and so it's just kind of what standard do you hold yourself to in those situations? Um, because, you know, I'm comfortable at 60 and that elk steps out at 67 yards and it's just like, that's not that much further. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's a significant difference on my arrow drop and shooting a hundred shots at 60 
is not like it doesn't mean that you're going to be that accurate at 70. Um, there's a lot more that comes into play. So it's just holding yourself accountable um, uh, for what your ability allows you to do. I have one more and then we'll start wrapping it up. Uh, we approached this situation last year and uh, it, it never actually, we never actually hit the animal. But if you were to wound an animal and you know that animal got away, you could not recover it, would you guys consider your tag punched or would you cont- continue to hunt on that tag? If I wounded an animal, found blood, never found it, I'd consider my tag punched. Legally, I'm allotted to kill one animal. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what my tag signifies is it gives legal permission for me to take the life of one animal. Um, so if I shoot, find blood, know that I hit that animal, um, to me, I'm assuming that that animal is going to die from that hit. Um, just because of where I'm shooting, I don't I don't think I'm going to like hit it in a spot where it necessarily isn't lethal. So my assumption is if I hit an animal and there's blood, um, then my tag is filled and it's my responsibility to find that animal or I, I just won't shoot anything else. Now, in our case, um, it was a miss. We spent hours looking for blood and didn't find any. Um, then, obviously, I, I, I'm not considering that animal dead. I'm considering that a miss, no blood found, and I, I'm willing to take another shot. But if if I find blood of an animal that I shot at, um, then my tag is on that animal whether I find it or not. That That is my animal, and I'm not going to shoot at another one. What about you, Eric? Yeah, you know, I'll admit, I, never, I haven't really thought about that much, but... I'd, I'd probably be in the same boat. I mean, sometimes some animals like deer, I'll get multiple tags. So like, I just probably would still keep going after a deer, after deer. But like, if it was an elk or something, man, I did, I think I'd just feel too guilty to want to keep going. Honestly, I just would feel terrible about it, and I'd probably beat myself up. Just like, man, what were you thinking? Why'd you take that shot? Or what happened? How'd you miss? Or whatever. But if it was like deer and i knew i spent a ton of time i'm maybe after like a week or so just kind of thinking about it maybe i could get myself to go out again especially like you said if i have like a couple deer tags maybe i consider one that one of them being spent but yeah i don't know i haven't really thought about it i'll definitely have to give it some thought and just kind of see where i stand on that situation but yeah i'd probably just feel guilty mostly and just not even sure if i'd want to keep going for a little bit afterwards I sit a little bit on the diff- other side. So I have wounded animals before and not proud of it, but stuff happens, you know, like sometimes you mess up a shot, sometimes you pull a shot, things happen. And I would 100% spend several days, and I have mm-hmm. several days looking for that animal, looking for blood. But if I did not get anything, um, if I did not find it, if I did not recover it, I would still continue to hunt on that tag. Um, I am there to fill the freezer. And, uh, unfortunately if that, hopefully that animal is not dead, but it's possible that it is, but I would definitely continue to hunt on my tag. Sure. Well, I mean, like, what if it's like, so some tags are definitely easier so you can kind of, you know, maybe you decide, Hey, I'm done with this tag i can have pursue after other animals but if it's like a once in a lifetime like you draw an a trophy district tag and you accident and you wound an animal 
are you gonna just call it quits even though like that might be the only time in your life you're hunting that district no would not cut it quits and i don't blame you there yeah so and i think there are parts to your answer that i'd like agree with 100 percent too is you got to put the time in after you shoot like there's a big difference between shooting at an animal and running away and you being like well it didn't drop so i'll just shoot the next one that comes along yeah. and shooting the animal and putting the time in if you find blood following it as long as you can or as long as it's it makes sense to um, yeah I'm, I'm i mean that's where i i draw the line definitely is there are people who shoot at animals and if it runs out of view then it to them it, it just doesn't matter anymore um if they don't drop it where it sits then they'll just shoot the next one um and so if you shoot you got to give that animal the time it deserves at least to to try to find it especially if you find some blood you can't i mean i'm just not for shoot it found some blood looked for two hours and just said well i didn't find it in the two hours so uh, that's fine i i think you need to spend at least you know a day trying to find that animal at least um, a day yeah yeah and it, it if you hunt long enough and you shoot at enough animals, eventually you're going to shoot at something that you hit and you don't find. I mean, mm-hmm. it, unfortunately, it's part of it. Um, there's so many variables in hunting, um, and it's it's going to happen, and it's just unfortunate. And it's something that none of us want to have happen. Um, th- I mean, we can't say that enough. Like, we are not trying to shoot these animals and have them run away and not find them. Um, yeah, we're shooting to kill. Out of your control. Or yeah, control. and so... Yeah, our aim is to you, kill, not to wound. Yeah, yeah. and if you... If you shoot an animal and don't find it and kill it, it's it's tough because that animal's not going to go to waste. Coyotes are going to find it. Wolves are going to find it. Bears going to find it. Birds, insects. The animal's not just going to be wasted. The ecosystem will take care of it um, the way it would if they killed that animal themselves. Um, and so it, it is important to know that um, that you know. Unfortunately, it's a circle of life, and but it's not like that animal is just wasted. Um, like something's going to get use out of it, and I, I mean, I've heard people talk about it, and I've thought about it. I mean, you know, sometimes wolves get kicked out of the pack, and this wolf is on its last legs, dying, and you shot an elk and couldn't find it, and the wolf stumbles upon it, and eating that saved the life of that wolf because it was going to starve to death. Um, what are the ethics? To, I mean. Is it ethical to have that? I mean, not that you're trying to shoot an animal and wound it and have it get away. Right, that's um, never the goal. But did it have, like, a positive impact on the ecosystem or something? It's hard to, I mean, there's so many what-ifs, and you would never honestly know what happened. But um, just kind of interesting to think about. Exactly. And that by and by no means does that excuse, like, headhunters when they go and shoot mm-hmm. an animal and just take the horns. It's not like, mm-hmm. oh, it's just going back to nature. It's fine. I'll just take the horns. That does not excuse that at all. No, it is I think it's more of a me- yeah. yeah, I think it's more of a means just to realize that, hey, some stuff's out of your control. Despite your best efforts, stuff happens, but it's not all going to be bad. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're wantonly just saying, like, going out, killing an animal, taking the horns and leaving the rest to waste, that is illegal and very unethical because you have the ability to retrieve it. If you've ex- if if you've spent all of your ability trying to retrieve that ammo, you cannot find it. You've tried your best, and you're like, at this point, doesn't make sense to keep looking for it. I think this is more of a, what we're trying to get at is, hey, it, it's not all bad. Exactly. I think that's yeah. the biggest thing here. Well, and it's personal <laughs> choice at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You know if whatever you, you feel wanna, comfortable with yeah. yeah like it's you're the one who's who's got to like deal with it 
so if if it's something where you can't like you're just like i can't shoot another animal then don't like yeah if that yeah. if that's what you need to do to get get by then don't and if you feel comfortable doing it then keep going after animals i mean it's it's definitely a personal choice yeah um, and just be respectful to other people's decisions mm-hmm. on that kind of a matter mm-hmm. yeah and it's definitely. not a matter of time of if you're going to wound an animal it's when more than it's likely when. it's you're going to at some point and no and this isn't just us saying like you know throw everything out the window like do your very best to be the first person in history to hunt your whole life and shoot a lot of animals to never wound one and have it get away right like we would love for all of you to have that happen like put yourself in the best possible position um to not have that happen but just realize that sometimes stuff does happen but that doesn't excuse you from preparing as best you can and spending as much time as you can to be proficient with your weapons and your shot selection and all that you need to still do all that just know that sometimes stuff does happen and it's not the end of the world and animals you'd be surprised at some of the stuff they can survive through um they're tough sobs man mm-hmm. like the bull i shot a couple of years ago i i only single lunged it and i couldn't find blood i i went it it I couldn't find any blood for 300 yards. I was just following tracks and there was a herd. So I was just kind of guesstimating. And finally I hit some snow and there was a significant amount of blood. I ended up having to blood trail that. And towards the end of it, it was just very, very little specks on rocks and on, uh, trees and stuff like that. But I had to blood trail it for like three miles and I got there and it still wasn't dead. And I had to put another shot into it. It was, it definitely affected me more than I thought it would. Mm-hmm. I felt like I kind of had failed it as a hunter and that I didn't give this animal the clean death that it deserved. And instead it ended up living with a gunshot for another four hours. And it, it made me feel like crap. And it's tough because some animals you put one in a lung and it'll drop in 50 yards. Yeah. And some will run four miles. Um, it's tough. I mean, if you hit a lung, it you did your job. likely die. Like, you're hitting a vital. Like, yep. that is... Sometimes your bullet just doesn't go through two, you know? Sometimes you don't get both lungs. Um, and even I've, I've double-lunged an animal before and watched it just lay down and just be breathing heavy but not dying. Yeah. And it's just like, what else can I do? Hard shots are tough. Usually you got to punch through a little bit of bone to get to the heart. Usually the legs kind of in the way. So I usually shoot for double lungs. Me too. And typically I drop them within 50 yards, but sometimes they're just tough sons of guns and they don't want to die and they're fighting and it's tough to watch. Um, it's tough to see that and know that you did everything right. And it still wasn't as fast of a death as you wanted. Um, but that's just kind of hunting. And I mean, I think when it comes to ethics, bottom line is like stuff's going to happen and like to be an ethical hunter you've just got to learn from all the experiences that you do um and just try to do better um learn from other people's stories learn from your own experiences learn your capabilities and just always you know focus on being being better next time um even if you do everything right just just trying to find ways to be a little bit better um it's just the best way you can be an ethical hunter 100 percent for sure is there anything else you guys want to touch on before we wrap her up? 
I think we'll just say good luck to all you spring bear hunters. It opens on Friday, so we are five days away from the first big game season of the the year opening up. Other than I think wolves been going for s- wolves since ended the year, in March. Was it March fifteenth? March fifteenth. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the first season opener of a big game animal on Friday. So good luck to everyone who's listening and it's going to be kind of taking on that. Um, if you get anything, we'd love to see pictures or hear stories or yeah. just anything. Cause we'll be out there. So, um, don't know what our schedule is going to look like. Um, I think we'll all be out in the woods a little bit. So, but yeah. we'll, we'll keep some content coming and especially for our hunts. I think if, especially if we're successful, we'll probably try to get a YouTube video up. Um, Absolutely. We'll get some pictures up and um then we'll get you know the the story on the podcast as we go along but yeah just good luck to everyone who's going to be partaking in that and just you know good luck and stay safe out there yeah definitely good luck everyone and i can't believe it's already starting soon, <laughs> soon. this year's going by fast it is going by really fast really fast we'll be hunting elk before we know it yes right? get those bugles <laughs> All right, you guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening in, and uh, good luck. All right, take her easy.